Pythagoras. Imagine a charismatic genius who easily acquires mastery over anything that interests him. Foreign languages, astronomy, sorcery, mathematics, or even the structure of music. One by one, all of these fall under his domain. There were names for men like this. Master, prophet, maestro, or simply teacher. And each was applied to Pythagoras. He lived in the 6th century BC, and no one knew what to make of him. For Pythagoras was a puzzle. If we listen to ancient writers, he was either a god or a man. Pythagoras himself said he was neither. Instead, he claimed to be something completely different. He's been compared to Einstein and called one of the most important men who ever lived. Yet we know little about him, and some of what we do know makes it difficult to take him seriously. An example? He had rules for his followers, admonishing them from wearing wool clothing or breaking bread, eating beans or walking along highways, and even touching roosters. Despite this, mathematics began with him, and in reality the modern world was born from his insights. We may not know it, but we now view the world through his eyes. And how did the Olympic gods, always hyper-aware of human endeavors, view Pythagoras? Hardly with sympathy. Pythagoras was a threat, the first man to seriously push the ancient divinities off their pedestal and into what? Mythology. This is episode 33 of Garner's Greek Mythology. We have listeners from 148 countries and have had more than 100,000 downloads. So welcome to everyone, wherever you are. I'm your host, mythologist and best-selling author Patrick Garner. These stories about the gods have been told for thousands of years, but now there are new stories that are as compelling. If you haven't already done so, check out my books about the gods in the contemporary world. You can read about them and about this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. And as always, this podcast focuses on one thing. Greek gods, of course. They, like you, are here now. And now, we return to Pythagoras. He is said to have thrived around 530 to 500 BC. We know he was born on the island of Samos, which lies off the coast of modern Turkey. Beyond that, his biography becomes clouded, even fanciful. For instance, many maintain, both during his lifetime and after, that the god Apollo was his father. Pythagoras himself was quick to show off a large golden birthmark on his thigh, a sign of being Apollo's son. And Pythagoras is quoted as saying, There are gods, and there are men, and then there is Pythagoras. At some point he became disenchanted with Samos. Scholars suggest he traveled to Syria, Babylon, and Egypt. Such a journey seems probable. 
These countries had a culture thousands of years older than that of Greece. A Greek writer named Diogenes Laertos, who lived in the 3rd century AD, tells us, quote, Now he was in Egypt when he learned the Egyptian language. He also entered the Egyptian sanctuaries and was told their secrets concerning the gods. Pythagoras eventually left for southern Italy, settling in a thriving Greek town called Croton, where he began to teach. He founded a society and acquired followers who became influential throughout the region. In time, the local power brokers turned against him and he was driven away. Something else that's noteworthy is that although he was one of the most important men in antiquity, Pythagoras left no writings and few traces for historians. Let's pause for a moment and explore why Pythagoras is so important to us today. It's quite simply because of mathematics. But what we think of now as the study of numbers was very different in 500 BC. I say that because Pythagoras was a mystic as well as a mathematician. Charmingly, or typically for the time, he saw no conflict between the two. Yes, he believed the world was nothing more than numbers, a concept that, in a time of Olympic gods, was completely original. But seamlessly, he also believed that when humans die, they're born again as other living creatures. Today we call such a belief transmigration, but at the time, teaching that the dead did not descend to the underworld was simply blasphemy. And be that as it may, like St. Francis, Pythagoras preached to animals, including birds, sheep, and oxen. For example, Pythagoras was known for whispering to oxen to the great amusement of farmers. But to their shock, these lucky oxen far outlived those who had not encountered Pythagoras. In another very famous story, one day on a walk, he came across a man beating his dog. As the dog whimpered and yelped in pain, Pythagoras recognized the sounds. He commanded the man to release the dog, saying, Stop! Your dog is an old friend of mine. I know his voice. In the society he founded, men and women were equals, and property was held in common. They were called Pythagoreans. They made numerous mathematical and scientific discoveries, which were all credited, even after his death, as mystical revelations emanating from Pythagoras's genius. They, like Pythagoras, believed that everyone should be purified. This is a concept that Pythagoras probably picked up from his travels. In the Far East, it's referred to as the Wheel of Birth. A follower could be purified, that is, released from this endless cycle of birth and death through the study of pure mathematics. And like Pythagoras, his followers saw no difference between spiritual and scientific realms. An example? 
Pythagoras was engrossed in the movement of the moon, stars, and planets. He invented the phrase, the harmony of the spheres. Believing that all celestial things were numerically in a harmonic progression, Yet he equally embraced astrology, certain that the alignment of the planets directly influenced human affairs. At some point, he applied his numbers theory to musical structure, discovering that the intervals between notes have simple numerical ratios. The Pythagoreans became convinced that if these ratios work so well with music, they must apply to all other things. Today, most students have heard of the Pythagorean theorem of right-angled triangles. It's likely that this theorem originated in Egypt, but Pythagoras pointed out that this formula could be scaled up by squaring the numbers. This realization allowed the axiom to be applied throughout architecture, engineering, and science. And so powerful were his insights that the Pythagoreans began to worship numbers rather than the gods on Olympus. And as a result, his society was forced to become more secretive. We've seen this before. Such heretical beliefs often led to thinkers being banished or killed. And remember, in 500 BC, one did not simply dismiss the gods who all knew made the world turn and the sun rise. Like Pythagoras, those who followed him were vegetarians. His belief that the human soul passes into other beings after death led him to avoid meat. But as we'll see near the end of this episode, his plant-based diet led to his death. And why did he avoid beans? Once, he dug up some freshly planted seeds and the swelling beans looked like human fetuses. Shocked, he became convinced that beans were related to humans and that they must contain human souls. Pythagoras also believed, like a few other extraordinary thinkers of his time, that all things were composed of atoms. For Pythagoras, shapes were made up of atoms that, like all phenomenon, were numbered in a perfect order. All of these theories we've discussed, in fact, all of Pythagoras's beliefs, are pre-Socratic, meaning simply that they predate Socrates. Socrates is one of the most famous of the philosophers who followed him, and one of Socrates' pupils was Plato whose writings reflected many of Pythagoras's notions. And because Plato was a superb popularizer, and many of his ideas were later picked up by Christians, Pythagoras's beliefs spread to the present era. As few details as we have about Pythagoras's life, we have numerous stories about his death. Here's one that's somewhat ironic. In the retelling, we return to beans and how 
Pythagoras' idealism may have ended his life. It goes like this. Once, there was a wealthy young man named Chilon, born into nobility. He was used to getting anything he desired. And when denied, he became violent and demanding. At some point, he desired to become a member of Pythagoras' society. Chilon believed that he could bypass the training, silence, and deep contemplation which preceded acceptance. When he demanded full membership, Pythagoras bluntly turned him down, refusing to even give him an audience. Like the goddess Hera, Chilon became angry and vengeful. He began giving public talks, mocking the teacher's ideas and beliefs. He described Pythagoras's followers as mere cattle and as blasphemous deniers of the gods. Chilon manipulated the townspeople until, finally as a mob, they descended upon the enclave where the society lived. They torched the buildings, and many of the Pythagoreans were killed. Pythagoras himself escaped when his followers formed a human bridge to help him out of a blazing building. Several of the attackers pursued him. Pythagoras had a significant lead, but suddenly the great man came to an abrupt stop. A vast bean field stretched before him. He saw the beans inches from his feet. Crushing even a single one would have been equivalent to murder. He froze in place. His pursuers caught up with him and killed him where he stood. The story may be a concoction, but Pythagoras was driven from Crouton by angry citizens who believed him to be dangerous. After all, he taught that the gods were an invention and that all things were the creation of numbers and atoms. Any good Greek knew that Zeus alone dictated the movement of planets and stars. Everyone could see that Apollo, Artemis, and the Muses were the source for all song and dance. Music was organic, chaotic, joyful, not a strange numbers game like Pythagoras would have them believe. Indeed, all that Pythagoras taught was an anathema to those seeped in the stories of Homer and Hesiod. They knew better. The gods were everywhere. Yet after his death, Pythagoras' teachings became even more influential. In the beginning of this episode, I described his life as a puzzle. I did so partly because as his sway over human understanding increased, an accurate sense of the man himself became increasingly obscure. In time, one of the most important men to have lived became better known to the public for his dietary restrictions than for his logic. The man scholars have compared to Einstein was easily mocked, yet when he lived, his charisma was dazzling. Those around him considered him godlike. And even today, his mathematical insights, which directly led to the development of science and logic, are considered revolutionary. 
Join me for the next episode of Garner's Greek Mythology. If you love what you hear, be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My novels about the Greek gods are as entertaining as these podcasts. And a great way to find out is to download my audible book, Homo Divinitus. You can get it at Amazon or on Audible. And thanks for listening. This is your host, Patrick Garner. <laughs>